So glad you're here. want to welcome those of you that are joining us online to this, our first of two services. We have uh, our second service, the first service being the Prophecy Update, and second service, the Sermon, which will be live streamed at 11.15 a.m. Hawaii time, for those of you that want to join us. And we're currently in the book of James. Our text today will be chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. And we're going to look at what it is that we can do about our propensity for impatience. I know you know nothing of this. Weariness. And how about this, even complaining in our waiting for the Lord's return in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. So again, that'll be second service. And then those of you that stay uh, for both, you're certainly welcome to do so and would encourage you to do so. Now, for those of you online watching by way of YouTube or Facebook, we'd encourage you to go directly to jdfrog.org. There you will find the uninterrupted and uncensored entirety of the update. So with that, let's go ahead and get started. Really looking forward to what the Lord has for us today, as I hope you'll see here shortly. Uh, I want to talk with you about how it is that the world today is now at the proverbial finish line prophetically. And by that I mean, in terms of Bible prophecy, we've reached the end and are about to cross this finish line. Can I say it like this, pre-tribulation rapture finish line? And here's why. Bible prophecy is swiftly careening forward, which points to the rapture and commencement of the seven-year tribulation. I want to begin by drawing your attention to two significant developments that took place just this last week concerning Israel. You're already, should we just close in prayer? You guys already know exactly where I'm going, and for good reason. Now, it is interesting because these uh, significant developments are concerning Israel, which um, I guess it could be said that Israel and the prophecies concerning Israel have seemingly taken a back seat over the last two plus years. But here's the thing. The prophecies in the Bible concerning Israel, of which there are many, uh, they may have taken a back seat, but they're still in the same fast moving vehicle. In other words, it wasn't put on pause. Uh, there have been significant developments. Actually, it could be argued that they've even accelerated as they speed forward toward their prophesied end, according to the Bible. Now, I'm going to have to ask you to do something that uh, you might remember a uh, school teacher asking you when you were young. 
uh, I need you to put your thinking cap on. I used to hate that when the teacher would say that to me. But because I want to go over several prophecies. I actually, there's a number of them here. And it might seem voluminous, like there's a lot of these, but you guys can do it. <laughs> and every single one of the prophecies that I want us to look at, all connect. And let me say it this way, even intersect. And specifically, as it relates to how they speak to the geopolitical positioning of the nations that invade Israel, and not only invade Israel, but also divide Jerusalem. And here's what I mean by connect and intersect. The common denominator with all of these prophecies that we're going to go over, they tie into this final global government, global religion, and global economy. So you ready? Ezekiel, I love you guys. Ezekiel 38, very well known. I'd like to read verses 1 through 6. This is a well-known prophecy concerning a yet future invasion of Israel. And we're told, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords. Now, verse 5, for the benefit of those who are relatively new to Bible prophecy, we have a, I'll call it a grocery list of nations that are named by their ancient names, starting with Persia, which we know today to be modern day Iran. Cush and Put, this would be the region of Ethiopia, etc. And will be with them all with shields and helmets, also Gamar, with all its troops. And Beit Togarma, that's actually the Arabic, Beit means house of Togarma or Beth Togarma, from the far north with all its troops and the many nations with you. So I wanted to stop at verse 6, but don't leave that yet, because I want to draw your attention to verse 13 in a moment, but I need to kind of set the stage here. So we have this list of nations. And for the purpose of our update today, let's just uh, talk about the main three that are at the helm of this allied invasion of Israel. It is Russia, Iran, and Turkey. 
Now there are other nations involved. And it is believed, and present company included, that all of the nations that are listed in this prophecy are already at the ready, particularly in Syria, which we're going to talk about in a moment. So the first six verses provide us now with the who, but let's talk about the what and the why. That's verse 13. After listing the nations that will invade Israel, verse 13 tells us who will not be invading. And it is interesting, not just the nations that are listed in this prophecy that are part of this allied invasion, but those that are conspicuously absent, completely from the prophecy, i.e. Egypt, no mention. Jordan, no mention. How about this one? Syria. You would think Syria is right there. We'll come back to Syria. But they're not included in this. Uh, what about the Arabian Peninsula? We know it today as Saudi Arabia. The reason it's Saudi Arabia and not Wahhabi Arabia, I, this isn't in my notes, so, but I already opened up the can, so let me explain this. It went to the house of Saud, not the Wahhabis, but the Saudis, when that area we know as the Arabian Peninsula was given to Beit Saud, Ibn Saud, the family, the house of Saud, hence the name Saudi Arabia. Now in, in verse 13, we're told what their ancient name was before it was Saudi Arabia. And it's very key, and it's in fact germane to our understanding of this prophecy, which is a key prophecy. And it's Sheba and Dedan. This is the area we know today as the Gulf area, Saudi Arabia, those Gulf states, those oil-rich states, as they're referred to. Well, we're told about them in verse 13. And the merchants of Tarshish, I know there's a lot of debate and speculation. Time doesn't permit, nor do we need to necessarily go there. And all her villages will say to you. Now, this is the why behind the what of this invasion. Have you come to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold? to take away livestock and goods, and to seize much plunder? Answer, yes. It's not in the text, but that's exactly what they're doing. Which presupposes a couple of things first. Uh, chief of which is that Israel has to be a nation in order for Ezekiel 38 to be fulfilled. Well, that happened May 14, 1948. So we can check that box. Another thing has to happen. Once Israel was reborn as a nation, which was another huge prophecy, that really started the ball rolling, the clock ticking. You can choose whatever metaphor you want on that one. But it also presupposes that once Israel is back in the land, 
they are prospering and rich and wealthy, and they have silver, gold, livestock, good. Uh, they have all of this plunder to seize, and they do. So we can check that box too. Now, why is verse 13 so germane to our understanding of Ezekiel's prophecy? Because, and stay with me, if you've got Russia, Iran, Turkey at all, all in Syria as we speak, at the ready to fulfill exactly what we're told in this prophecy in Ezekiel that was written some 2,500 plus years ago. And you've got Saudi Arabia, who all of a sudden it would appear is kind of uh, chummy with Israel. Well, that's what it says. They're protesting this invasion. They're questioning this alliance of nations. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? Are you going to take what Israel has? It almost sounds like um, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and, oh, some of these uh, other countries that currently have wonderful foreign relations with Israel, as we speak again, uh, are not going to be part of this, because they are on Israel's side of the table, if I can say it like that. So hang on to that. Let's talk about Syria. You know this one well. Isaiah 17.1, it's also in Jeremiah 49, but it's a prophecy against Damascus. What's the prophecy? See, behold, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. So here's what I'm thinking. This invasion from the north, Ezekiel 38, comes vis-a-vis -vis Syria. And the fulfillment of Isaiah 17.1 explains the conspicuous absence of Syria being involved in this alliance of nations that invades Israel. We already have verse 13 of Ezekiel 38 explaining to us where Saudi Arabia and those nations are in this equation and prophecy. But we really haven't had an explanation until Isaiah 17.1 as to why it is. I mean, it would stand a reason that Syria would certainly be involved, right? Well, if it's destroyed, then that would explain why <laughs> Syria is not involved. I know that might seem like a firm grasp of the obvious, but it seems like the target is not just Israel, but Jerusalem. So let's talk about Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretcheth forth the heavens, and layeth the foundation of the earth, and formeth the spirit of man within him, behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and Jerusalem. And then verse 3, And in that day 
I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone, boundary stone, heavy stone for all people. All that burden themselves, try to move the boundary stones, try to cut up Jerusalem, divide Jerusalem, all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. At the risk of an oversimplification, this is a, again a well-known prophecy that speaks to how the entire world will have this intoxicating obsession with dividing Jerusalem into two states, with Jews and Palestinians, so-called, no such thing, uh, Jews and Palestinians living side by side together in, quote, peace and security. You want to come back to that? And again, I know you know where I'm going with that. So the focus now is not just on Israel, but really the, the target where the goalposts are is Jerusalem and the dividing of Jerusalem. And then there's another prophecy in Joel chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 and 2. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and, listen, they have divided up, keyword, my land. Oh, oops. No, that's, that's my land. Uh, my name is on it. Literally, by the way, we've talked about that prior. God literally put His name on Jerusalem. That's, that's my land. Jerusalem, that's, that's mine. And you're trying to divide it up? You don't want to do that. Because in that day I will judge those that divide my land. Now, 1 Thessalonians 5.3, again, very well known. You'll usually, I want to venture to say, and I'll just put a percentage on it, probably in the high 90s in terms of a percentage, and that's maybe conservative. But when you hear these two words, peace and security, over 90% of the time it's in the context of the aforementioned two-state solution. Now, I've been studying Bible prophecy for many, many years, and I actually have in my archives files from, I know this, this is going to date me, but back in the late 80s, I was only five. But I have archive files of world leaders saying these two exact words, peace and security, within the context of a two-state solution. 
which I believe is Hitler's final solution repackaged. And the reason I say that is because when one Yasser Arafat was still alive, remember him? You're trying to forget him? <laughs> well, when he was still alive and he would come to the U.S., he would say, we, we want peace with Israel. No, you don't. Because then he'd go right back to Ramallah and in Arabic say, peace for us means the destruction of Israel. And it's no wonder, because it's in the Qur'an with Muhammad before and then Saladin after. The whole point of Islam is to make peace with your enemy, then destroy them. Enter 1 Thessalonians 5.3. This is going to change the whole complexion of this prophecy. For when they say, peace and security, then sudden destruction comes upon, and I like this word a lot, them. I'm not a them. <laughs> them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And, and, and here's another word I like, similar, and they, they shall not escape. Um, this is in the context of the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit writing about the rapture, and he delineates between they and we, them and us. They will not escape, but we who are alive and remain, will be caught up, raptured up, harpazo in the Greek, the Latin raptures. That's where we get the word rapture. We. So if you hear nothing else that I say today, hear this, be a we. Okay, good. We're good. Let's talk about Daniel 9.27 now. This is, again, uh, very well known, very important prophets. They're all important, but I'm tying stuff together, and I hope it'll all fit here in a moment. This prophecy provides us with specificity, because we're told here that He, speaking of the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant. Now, I think I would be remiss if I didn't explain the meaning of this word confirm, which has been the subject of much in the way of debate and conversation amongst Bible students and Bible prophecy teachers. In the Hebrew, it's the same word as it is in my native tongue of Arabic. It's the Arabic and Hebrew word ikbir, ikbir, which means superior, spectacular, stronger, greater. This is a, in other words, there's something already on the table. It just needs to be confirmed, made bigger, greater, enforced perhaps. It's kind of hard, because when you talk about other translations in other languages, it's that textbook case of it gets lost in the translation. And this is one of those cases. There's not really an English word to really describe what this word means in the original. It is 
a word that implies that this is a covenant, a peace agreement, that will be made great, strong. It will be implemented. It will be enforced. It will be finally signed, and you'll forgive the word, but for lack of a better one, executed. <laughs> I should have chosen a different word than that. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. That's seven years. In the middle of the seven, now we're talking about the seven-year tribulation. And by the way, parenthetically, let me say that it is not the rapture that starts the seven-year tribulation. It's the fulfillment specifically of Daniel 9.27 that starts the seven-year tribulation. Once Daniel 9.27 is fulfilled, the seven-year tribulation starts. And in the middle of the seven, He will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, stop right there, this infers obviously that at some point at the beginning of maybe even prior to, that temple's going to get rebuilt. Because at the three and a half year mark, it's already not only fully built, it's fully functioning. And they're offering sacrifices. And so we're told that He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on Him. And then lastly, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. This comports with Daniel 9.27. The Apostle Paul writing the Thessalonians in the context of the rapture prior to the seven-year tribulation says, He, speaking of the Antichrist, opposes and exalts Himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that He takes His seat in the temple of God, declaring Himself to be God. When does He do that? Well, we just got done reading Daniel 9.27 at the midpoint. And it's believed that it's at this point when Israel realizes, wait a minute, this is not our Messiah. This is the false Messiah that's just committed this abomination that causes desolation. He declares Himself to be God. Again, much in the way of speculation on the part of Bible students of Bible prophecy and Bible prophecy teachers. But it is believed that He will commit this abomination, and it will cause desolation. And Israel will realize this is the false Christ. And that will be what brings them to their true Christ, Jesus the Christ. And they will flee for the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation and be protected by God Himself. Many believe, present company included again, that this will be in the uh, ancient city of Petra, which is in modern-day Jordan. Actually, just a little side note. Uh, it's believed that that's where Job lived. 
was actually in Petra. I've only been there once, my wife and I. Uh, this was uh, BC, before children. And uh, <laughs> just want to clarify that. And it was in uh, the 90s. And uh, uh, actually my cousin took us there, because I have family there in Jordan. And uh, man, you need to take several days to see this entire, it is just breathtaking. It is just stunning. It is a impenetrable rock fortress that Israel will flee Jerusalem and Israel from to get to, to be protected for the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. Okay, let's try to connect some of these uh, prophetic dots here. So we've got prophecies that describe in some detail that at the time of the end, there's going to be this man, this antichrist figure, which by the way, doesn't just mean against Christ, but in the place of Christ. Because apparently he sets himself up as God in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. So this man will then, once he does this, it seems will also be the one that says, hey, if you'll sign right here, I'll throw in the temple, no extra charge. Daniel 9.27. So that's what enforces and strengthens, makes it be this seven-year covenant. And once that happens, then the seven years begins. And that's the last seven years of human history, as we know human history to be presently. But we're also told that there's going to be an invasion of Israel, that there's going to be this in intoxicating obsession with the dividing of Jerusalem. And it would stand to reason that if these prophecies, which again all intersect and connect, it, it would stand to reason that you would start seeing some of it beginning to come to pass. In other words, you, you, you would start seeing some political maneuvering, geopolitical repositioning of the nations that are in these prophecies, right? So the question is, are we? The answer is, you better believe it. On Tuesday, Times of Israel published a report. You know, sometimes, and I, you'll forgive me for my, you know, God's got a sense of humor. So that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. I know my humor isn't always appreciated. But sometimes I just, I just wonder, do these people get up in the morning and go on their news feed, and then go, go to Ezekiel, <laughs> Ezekiel 38 and go, man, we better get this show on the road. Get, get Putin, get him on the phone, get Erdogan, he's in there. And I, you see, we got an invasion scheduled. <laughs> okay, again, that's my humor, so whatever. So this was Tuesday. Here's the headline. In Tehran, Putin, Raisi, and Erdogan vow to continue Syria cooperation. 
Oh, they, they must have included Isaiah 17.1 in their briefing too, apparently. Here's a couple of quotes. Russian President Vladimir Putin, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi, and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan held a trilateral meeting in Tehran on Tuesday. The three leaders agreed to continue consultations and cooperation to, quote, eliminate terrorists in Syria in a statement following their meeting. The three countries reaffirmed the determination to continue their ongoing cooperation in order to ultimately eliminate terrorist individuals, groups, undertakings, and entities, while ensuring, I'm sorry for my chuckling, the protection of the civilians and civilian infrastructure in accordance with international humanitarian law, the statement read. I'm just going to leave that one there. Also from the Times of Israel, this is on Saturday, comes this report concerning Saudi Arabia and Israel. Remember, they're going to be together on this against this allied invasion with Russia, Iran, and Turkey at the helm. So at some point, Saudi Arabia and Israel have to have something in place. Well, they do, and they will. Here's what the headline read. Saudi minister, peace with Israel, strategic option, but not before two-state solution. Okay, <laughs> that's Ezekiel 38. That's Zechariah 12, 1 through 3. That's Isaiah 17, 1. That's Joel 3, 1 through and 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. Daniel 9, 27. And 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, all wrapped up into one nice, tidy, neat little package. Would you agree? Exactly as we were told. Every single one of these nations are doing exactly what we're told they would do at the time of the end. So let me just quote this article real quick. In it they say, a senior Saudi minister described normalizing ties with Israel. Saudi Arabia normalizing ties with Israel as a strategic option while clarifying that a two-state solution between Israel and the Palestinians was a requirement before Riyadh would formalize ties with Jerusalem. It's almost like, where, where do you sign? They're just, they're, they're already ready. Is that even a proper sentence structure? It probably isn't. They're already ready. They're just waiting for the green light. And I think that green light's coming. Now here's where I'm going with this. The common denominator with all of this is that there's one man, the man of perdition, aka 
the Antichrist who will be at the helm of all of this. In other words, he will control the world, a one world government, a one world religion, and a one world economy in and during the seven year tribulation. Now here's a question, how? How is it plausible and conceivable that this man of sin, as he's also known, is going to actually gain control of the entire world in this way. He will be worshipped. He will be the one man that will be seen as the Saviour of the world, for the world, to solve all of the problems in the world. How is that even going to be possible? Well, it's going to be possible because Satan will possess this man. He will be the personification of Satan himself. And thankfully the Word of God provides us with the answer, which is what I want to now address for the remainder of our time. But to do so we'll end the Facebook and YouTube, <coughs> pardon me, live stream at this time. The truth of the matter is, and I believe this with all of my heart, and we've talked about it before, it's not hyperbole, that the Antichrist is already on the scene, behind the scene. And he's at the ready. And there's nothing in Scripture, you will not find Bible prophecy anywhere described the Antichrist as setting any, anything up. What we instead see in Bible prophecy is the Antichrist. All he does is he just flicks the switch. Everything's already been prepared, set up. All the wiring's been <laughs> completed. It's just a matter of him being revealed, coming on the scene, and again flicking the switch. What switch? Well, this switch for a global religion, a switch for a global government, and a switch for a global economy. Now stay with me and hear me out on this. If you were to ask me why it is that I'm so convinced we are at the finish line of Bible prophecy, my answer would be, in a word, COVID. And here's why. Prior to 2020, wouldn't you agree that it was somewhat inconceivable to imagine the world coming together and uniting in lockstep like it did? I'll never forget one day, I'm, I'm sitting in my office and I'm looking up on the screen, and the Ayatollah Khamenei wearing a mask. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. The whole world was doing the same thing under the same 
control. We had never seen anything like it before in human history. I mean, if you want to really think it through, you'd be really hard pressed to find anything in the history books that would even come close to what we saw at the beginning of 2020. And oh, by the way, isn't it interesting, hmm, things that make you go, hmm, that this came on the heels of actually, arguably, in concert with the long anticipated, quote unquote, deal of the century. Hmm, right on schedule. Right on schedule. Everything is going perfectly according to God's prophetic plan. And the whole world was on board, in lockstep, in lockdown, like we talked about last week. Inconceivable. Prior to 2020, come on, let's be honest. Let's say, let's just rewind the clock of time. And let's just say the year is 2017, and you're here. Good morning and welcome. So glad you're here, 2017. Had a little more hair back in 2017, but I'm up here, and I'm talking about Bible prophecy. And you're listening to the prophecy update, and I say something to this effect. Uh, we're not too far away from a day when the whole world will be in lockdown. You would look at me like, he lost it. We, we saw it coming. <laughs> He's completely lost it. There's no, that's, that's impossible. That's not going to happen. Oh no, it's going to happen. Let's go back to 2018. Let's go back to 2019. I remember a couple of those updates from 2019. In fact, I had a sense, I'm not trying to say I, I knew anything was coming, but I just had a sense that, man, in fact, I even told friends of mine that, hey, I'm going to hunker down and I'm not going to go speak and I'm not going to, I need to, I just need to be here. And I need to be here for my church that I'm so privileged. Uh, I was reminded of this. I told the group, I said, I think this is the last time I'll ever be in Israel. And I didn't know at the time. It was just a sense that I had that this is the last time. I just had this sense that, that something was coming, and boy, did it. And the world changed, never to go back again in the year 2020. So what's your point, Pastor? Here's my point. Prior to 2020, it was inconceivable. Would you agree? It was really, it would have been really hard to wrap your mind around how the whole world would come together globally, globally, doing the same thing, in lockstep, inconceivable. Well, now not so much. So here's my point. It's not too far of a stretch to get from that to these prophecies that I just read, because the ball's already in motion as it were. What if I told you that everything 
now beginning to come to pass as we near the finish line. The global government, the global religion, and the global economy are all prophesied in one chapter in the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Let's start with the global religion, Revelation 13.4. So, pardon me, they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? This is a global worship, inconceivable prior to 2020. Now I, I could see it. I could see it. Global government, verse 7, Revelation 13, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Notice God is in control of everything. The devil can't do anything unless God allows him to, and God will never allow the enemy to do anything unless it ultimately fulfills his plan. And you might be here today or watching online, you're going through the trial of your life. I want to encourage you, and here's why. God has allowed the enemy to, as the Apostle Paul would say, torment you. <laughs> here's this thorn in the flesh, if you prefer. And you've pleaded with God, you've begged with God, you've cried out to God, God remove this. And God says, No, my grace is sufficient for you. But why, why are you allowing Satan to torment me? This is a messenger of Satan sent to torment. Why are you allowing Satan to torment me? Why are you allowing the enemy to do this to me? because it's in the end for my glory and your good. If you knew what I knew, you would not want me to. That could be a song. <laughs> if, be, see, God is all-knowing, right? He knows the end from the beginning. And we don't know His ways. We don't know His whys. Maybe this is for somebody here, and I, I know I'm kind of going off, and maybe this is the Holy Spirit, but Maybe this is a word for you, to encourage you. God's allowing the enemy. See, you can ask Job about this. Not that we're going to ask anybody anything when we get to heaven. We're just going to be like, you know, all those questions we have. When I get to heaven, I'm going to, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're going to be before the throne, worthy, worthy, worthy. <laughs> but Satan could not do anything to Job unless God gave him permission to. And God only gives permission to the enemy to do anything to us, if in the end it's for our good and His glory. Uh, something that has really helped me in my walk with Jesus over the years is that I know that God is answering all of my prayers the same exact way I would answer my own prayers if I knew what He knew. Let me say the same thing in a different way. He's all-knowing, right? And we pray and we cry out, Oh God, remove this trial, this thorn, this 
tormenting, and some of you are thinking, boss, roommate, neighbor, don't do that. <laughs> Remove this. No, I'm, I'm using this. You have no idea. If you knew what I knew, you would not ask me to remove that. In fact, if you knew what I knew, you'd be thanking me for allowing this, because I know the end from the beginning. I know, again, I digress, but I just really want to encourage you, those of you that are going through trials and difficulty and struggles, and believe you me, I know, I know, I understand. It's getting pretty tough, isn't it? Especially as we near the finish line, <laughs> the title of today's Prophecy Update. The closer we get, the harder it's going to get. You know that, right? You just be encouraged. God knows what He's doing. You don't know what God's doing. He knows what He's doing. Let Him do it. Just stay out of His way. Don't try to help Him out. I know you don't do that. I'll speak for myself. I'm always trying to help God out. God. And and God's like, you want to help me? Don't help me. Because you're, ma you're making it worse. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. Just let me do it. I think of that hymn of old. This is the last thing, and then we'll get back to our prophecy update already in progress. <laughs> but I think of that classic hymn. I love it so much. In fact, my mom <clears throat> not only made me, but paid me to learn to play this on the piano. It was hymn number 272 in our hymn book at the time, had an upright piano. And uh, it's the classic, timeless hymn, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Have Thine Own Way, Lord, have Thine Own Way, Thou art the potter, I'm the clay. <laughs> Mold me and make me after thy will. And this is the hard part. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Ah. Can I rewrite that last verse on that last line before that? <laughs> While I'm waiting, I hate to wait. While I'm yielding, I, no. <laughs> And how about, be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46, 10. Have you ever had those times in those trials where God's just saying, you just sit still, be still, do nothing. This is my battle. You're not going to have to fight this battle, like He said to Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20. Battle belongs to me. All I'm going to have you do is just stand there and behold the salvation of the Lord. And oh, by the way, send your praise and worship team out and just thank me in advance. I was thinking about this. I know I said, this is, <laughs> we'll get back, don't worry. And don't look at your watches either. I always think about the Israelites at the Red Sea. And they got the Egyptians right here and the Red Sea right here. And they start complaining. We're going to be talking about this in James' second service a little bit, about the complaining part. Now you have to show up, because now you know what it's about. So <laughs> they were complaining and murmuring again. And it, I mean, it's, it's bad. They're like, were there not enough graves in Egypt? 
that God had to bring us out here to kill us. And uh, of course you know what God did. He parts the Red Sea, they walk on dry ground. And then when the Egyptians follow in hot pursuit, the sea closes and the enemy is defeated. And He delivers them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now where I come from, they call that a miracle. And it's pretty clear, right? I, I, I like to refer to that account as Red Sea clear, because you've got to know that when the sea was parted and the ground was dry, it's pretty clear God wants us to go this way. I think this is, this is God's will, pretty clear. <laughs> yeah, I think. I wish that all of those times when you want to know the will of God, that He would make it Red Sea clear. But you know what they would, did? So afterwards, of course, Miriam, and they're praising the Lord, they're singing and they're worshiping and they're thanking God for the miracle He just performed. It's not long after they start complaining again. Are you kidding me? Unless we be too hard on them, we would have done the same thing. Here's where I was going with that. Try this. Try singing and praising and thanking Him before the seas parted. What do you mean? I had a situation a couple weeks ago. It uh, played out over a period of about a day, maybe a day and a half. And I just started thanking God in advance. Lord, I know You're going to part this Red Sea. I know You're going to do this, because You promised me in Your Word that You were going to do this. And you can't break your word. You can't break your promise. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thank you now. I'll, I'll thank you after too. Because see, when they started praising the Lord, it was not in faith, it was in relief. Well, I want to do this by faith, being the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet. So I haven't seen the sea parted yet, but you said you're going to part it. So thank you, Lord. And I started playing worship music and singing and praising and thanking God. And by the way, uh, oh, it'll do, do a heart good, especially for those of you that are relatively close to my age, the old Maranatha music. Oh. I mean, it's just, oh, I'm just praising and thanking God. Day and a half goes by, boom, there's that Red Sea parted. There's that dry ground. I, you should have seen me. <laughs> I didn't walk. I ran. I ran. And then I turned around. I wanted to see the <laughs> enemy defeated. <laughs> Is that too much? Okay. So we've got our, our global religion. They're going to worship. We've got our global government, Revelation 13, 7. And God is controlling all of it, and says that it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is the world's governments. And then lastly, the global economy. And you know this one well. Verses 16 and 17, actually take 18 in there too. All three are in, in Revelation 13. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, 
to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Do you see how this all ties together? It's all under the authority of one who has been given the authority to control the entire world globally, a global religion, a global government, and a global economy. Can I just ask you real quick, lastly, do you see this starting to take shape? Here's the bottom line. The world today has already witnessed firsthand the plausibility of all of this happening since back in 2020. Now it's not too far of a stretch to get to what we're told will happen during the seven-year tribulation, from where we're at now, with everything that's happened heretofore. We're at the end. And while I realize and am keenly aware that I'm saying basically the same thing every week in a different way, I'm going to keep saying the same thing every week in a different way, because it's true. We're at the end. This is the end. And here's the good news. <laughs> Jesus Christ provides a way out of this world. There's no hope for this world. Our only hope, our blessed hope, is in the person of Jesus Christ and salvation found in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's really simple. It's so simple. In fact, in some ways it's maybe too simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is that He came and He died and He was buried and He rose again on the third day and He's coming back again one day. Why is that good news? Because He died in my place, and He defeated death, and He made me a promise that He goes to prepare a place for me in His Father's house, where there are many dwelling places. And if He goes, He's going to come back and take me and you to that place that He's prepared for me and you. And if it were not so, He would not have told us. That is the word of a bridegroom to his bride, saying, we're engaged now, and I'm going to come as a thief in the night and abduct you as my bride and take you to a wedding, a bridal chamber, and we're going to celebrate and consummate for a period of seven, by the way, our marriage together. And then after the seven, we're going to come out from that bridal chamber, that place that I've been preparing. And we're going to have a huge wedding feast, as was the custom in that day, and as is the custom even today. That's the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Your debt has been paid. You're free to go. Now the ABCs of salvation, again, is just a simple explanation of salvation. It's not a hard and fast formula. It just is a tool that you can use. and. The A is for admit or acknowledge that you sinned. 
Because until and unless you acknowledge that you're a sinner, you would not have any interest in a Saviour. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. And Romans 3.23 tells us why. It's because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were all born sinners, which is why we must be born again, Jesus says, spiritually, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So how does that work and what does that mean? Well, Romans 6.23, interestingly, packages first the bad news with the good news. See, we've all been sentenced to death because the wages of sin is death. We all are born sinners and have the death penalty hanging over our head. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus says, I'll go to your death in your stead. I'll die for you. You've been sentenced to death, I'll carry out the death sentence for you instead of you. And then when I do, I will purchase and pay in full, and then I will offer you the gift that I paid for on the cross in my death for you. I will offer you a gift that I purchased and paid for in full. And that gift is the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The B, very central, very simple, is for believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. The most famous, well-known, quoted verse in all of the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And the C lastly is for call upon the name of the Lord, or as Romans 10, 9 and 10 also says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And Romans 10.13 lastly says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's just so simple. And it's a simple tool you can use to share the gospel with somebody. Easy to remember. Well, I'd like to end with the But God testimony for today, which comes from Teresa Morris, who writes, Our But God testimony. My husband's journey with COVID pneumonia started January 27th, 2022, when he was taken by ambulance to the hospital. First thing they wanted to do is put him on a ventilator. We knew what was happening to people on ventilators besides the drug usually given to them. We made it clear we didn't want him given the drug. They kept telling us he was dying. Two days in, they insisted to ventilate him or he'll die. We had no choice. My daughter emailed you for prayer, specifically for a miracle. And we prayed, by the way. We never stopped believing. God knew how 
desperate we were not to want to be a victim of this satanic agenda with COVID and hospitals. The first hospital gave us no hope. We saw people of various ages dying around us. The hospital staff weren't happy that I and one of our children were there every day by his side watching everything they were doing. When he had a decent evening, we'd come back the next morning and he'd be worse. Or I'd get a call in the middle of the night telling me he needed a blood transfusion. When the neighboring room's alarm went off and no one showed up for quite some time, then all of a sudden everyone came and I heard a nurse scold another that she didn't want to see that happen again. And two days later that patient was dead. I brought up to the administrator what I heard, and next thing I know, they are sending my husband to an acute care hospital. He was there eight days and was sent to a third hospital because of internal bleeding. He was in the ICU for a couple more months. That hospital staff gave no hope and suggested that if his heart would stop, it would be dangerous to try to revive him, since he has a mechanical heart valve. We told them that God can do miracles. He's the great physician. They didn't think much of that. <laughs> they just continued to fill him with antibiotics, which caused other health problems and mind-altering drugs which affected his breathing and personality. Our granddaughter and I visited him one morning to find they had his head, hands and feet tied down. The side bed rails were padded and he was naked. I was livid. I know it was those horrible drugs. I demanded they get him off of them immediately. I forgot to mention that they had also put a trach in at the first hospital. When they took him off those drugs, he was in his right mind and didn't have any signs of withdrawals. He was still having issues with bleeding, which they couldn't find out where or what was causing it. On Resurrection Sunday, the hospital chaplain came in and we asked him for prayer because of the bleeding. He prayed with us that God would show a miracle and heal the bleeding. He never had an issue after that. He was sent to a regular room for about a week or two more, and then transported to the second hospital, which had a rehabilitation area. My husband was improving. They removed the trach and the feeding tube. He was able to eat. My husband wasn't the healthiest person prior to becoming sick. He has a heart valve, heart failure, Parkinson's and neuropathy from the knees down, but God. He was able to come home. June 8th. He'll be on oxygen for a while, but he's alive and with his family. And we thank and praise God for this miracle. Thank you all. That's you, by the way, for praying. God is still doing miracles. Don't ever doubt what God is able to do. My husband is proof. Praise the Lord. Once you all stand, we'll pray and close in song. Appreciate your patience today. Loving Heavenly Father, we 
cannot thank you enough that you are the great physician, that we can come to you at any time with anything and ask of you for anything, and that you will always hear from on high and hearken unto the voice of our cry. Lord, I want to pray for any that are hurting today and really struggling and actually even being given over to despair, not knowing how it's even going to be possible to get out of the situation they're in. You know. You can do it. And you will do it, because you promise to do it. Lord, we want to praise You on this side of the Red Sea. <laughs> and thank you in advance. And lastly, Lord, for anyone who might be here or watching online that has never put their faith in you, believed in you, called upon you, trusted in you. Lord, I, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All the earth will shout your praise, our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. All the earth will shout your praise, our hearts will cry, these bones will your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great are you, Lord. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing. Great 
God bless you.